Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg, and welcome to the show. Bill, I just have to tell you, last week I saw uh, a performance. I um, I went to the uh, Hampshire uh, Big Brothers Big Sisters fundraiser called Big Love Little Performances, and uh, it was incredible. This performer dressed in a kind of zany way. This woman was dressed in a zany way. Her hair was coming every different direction. She gets up to sing Monty Belmonte in this sequined, I don't know what, glittering jacket and vest, gets up and yeah, joins her. It. it was just a profound thing. I, I think that this woman was the mayor of East Hampton. I'm not sure. I've never seen a mayor quite like that. I'm pretty sure she not only was the mayor of East Hampton, probably still is the mayor of East Hampton. And guess what, Buzz? Just happens to be our guest, since this is in fact Mayor's Monday on WHMP. I wonder and what I wonder what her hair is like today. I don't know. She just rolled out of bed. It's probably still frizzy like that. Welcome, Madam Mayor. How do you think we're doing so far? How's it going? This it won well deserved. Yes, it was me. Um, that night, my hair was full of hairspray. Tonight, today. Uh, Bill, because I got a wake-up call. My hair is in a ponytail, uh, and I have a cup of coffee. I'm feeling pretty on top of it. That was so much fun uh, to perform uh, at the uh, the benefit for uh, Big Brothers, Big Sisters. I mean, just I not my thing at all, and I had an absolute blast, even though the technical stuff was all off for me, and I couldn't really hear. But um, I'm back next year. I mean, like, I'm going to – I don't know, maybe – uh, Bill and I could do some kind of a duet like Muskrat Love from Captain and Tennille. You know? Oh, no. Ah! I, I was going to go until you said that. But very seriously, the last thing I'm going to say about this, everyone in the audience was so impressed that the mayor of East Hampton <laughs> was up there in order to raise money for this good cause. Yeah. And it was there a lot go. of fun. It, people really loved what you did. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you so much. It was really just so much fun to do it. Yeah, and keeping up with Monty on the stage with that sequence, oh. old sequence, that 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 takes a lot of doing. It just does. Yes. I've it, been there. I, oh my gosh, so difficult. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is. On the other hand, you're thinking, on one hand, I don't want to blow it. On the other hand, he won't let me blow it. And on the third right. hand, no, there can't be a third hand. There are only two hands. Which yeah. is that? The, the third hand is, there goes my career. No. <laughs> well. I've said that so many times, but that, that would not have been the, yeah, like, ugh. Oh, goodness. Well, meanwhile, back in the world of governance, oh, well, kind of boring, I guess, by comparison. But there are three topics I'd like to ask you about. Um, I'd like to ask you about schools. I want to ask you about, the, about policing, because we've been asking the mayors who have been on the show the last few Mondays about policing in their cities. And I know there's a pay equity proposal you've made, all really interesting topics. Let's start with something positive, uplifting, totally cool. New schools, new school yeah. buildings. Okay, tell us about that. So we, on the 20, I mean, on the 16th of February, we opened up the proposals for reusing our three schools, Maple Street School, um, Pepin School, and Center School. They're all within our downtown district. Um, it really, very old schools. It's a very complicated construction environment. And uh, we've got three proposals that are all really fascinating. Really, I mean, I kudos to the proposers 
um, they really listen to the RFP and what um, community input. So they are going, those three bids are going up on our website probably tomorrow. They're really big. So we have to condense them in some way. And then we have um, an evaluation committee that goes through the RFP grid, the rubric to grade each one before it goes back to the city council. And, and we're hoping to get it back to the city council in March should be um, so we can start a robust uh, kind of public dialogue about um, what these RFP means, how do they meet our community needs. The housing um, just was doing backflips um, over where we saw in each uh, proposal, uh, one bedroom studios, two bedroom, three bedrooms, very community focused, uh, affordable housing. I, yeah, I could go on and on and on, but they will be online if they're not already on our website. Um, and there will, um, we'll have details about when people, when it gets to city council, how people can weigh in and when the um, three proposers are interviewed. So we're okay. long time coming. So the RFPs, a request for proposal. What was the request? What did you ask bidders to bid on? And were they told how much money was available for this project? Um, no, we didn't want to know on the money. Um, it certainly was an option. And what we did is after we did eight different community um, driven studies, feasibility studies, surveys, they're all on the planning website of what what folks wanted to see at these three sites. They're all over 100 years old. One is right by um, when you come into Cottage Street by Nini's restaurant, and the other two are right by um, the on Main Street and Park where it splits. It's about maybe an eighth of a mile from right downtown. And what people wanted to see as far as um, housing, uh, community connections, um, in, in uh, energy efficiency. And we then put it into a, a, a rubric for the RFP. Every, we prioritized what the community wanted to see. We prioritized what our housing production and needs surveys uh, said we needed and where we needed it. We put that in a committee from our chief procurement officer will lead a small evaluation committee to score it properly under uh, the 30B procurement law. And then with those scoring um, rubrics completed, it'll go to the city council for uh, final determination. Okay, so let's stop there for one second. You have, th you have three very old school buildings in East Hampton yes. that, are, that are now no longer being used as schools, right? Is that right? Correct. Okay. And are they vacant? They are. Okay. And they well, the new schools, when did the new school open? September. So it hasn't been for a really long time, but you have these vacant old yeah. buildings. But they are, but they're old brick buildings. They are rehabilitatable. They are, the outsides are going to be usable or they're going to be raised. What are we, what are we looking uh, at here? Either or. Um, we left it up to the proposer to meet the goals of the city. They can tear the schools down or they can restore. We do have one proposal where they're looking at raising the entire building um, to put housing, community gardens, and, and um, uh, playscapes on. Um, the other two proposals talk about renovating uh, the three old buildings. Now, when you talk about 
housing. I assume that you had to put out, I don't, maybe I shouldn't, that you had to put out so much market rate housing, so much of the percentage of this is going to be uh, uh, housing for low income persons, or am I making assumptions that are unwarranted? Oh, our RFP was really flexible. So we talked about like what the housing mix was in East Hampton currently and what our need was and the production schedule through a housing production plan that we had put together um, with uh, the Department for Economic Development and Housing. So what we did is we referred back to um, we referred back to that um, plan and also all of the plans were kind of wrapped up in a neat proposal for an ad hoc work group who went through the housing plans and development plans of the city members of the committee i mean sorry members of the community that kind of uh, refined the rfp um and put things into buckets according to these different public plans for when they gave it to city council so the vetting i mean it was like 19 months in in the making for this particular rfp and it had um an ad hoc uh, residence committee that worked on it, as as well as this evaluation committee. Um, uh, Mayor LaChapelle, this is Buzz. Um, I know that Maura Healy, in her inaugural words, said that there, she's going to have a strong focus on affordable housing throughout the Commonwealth. Have you heard anything that would indicate that the state would be chipping in if you go to an affordable housing model that Bill was alluding to? Yeah, I mean, all three of the proposals, and we also expected that there will be, um, there are housing tax credits and different housing programs, mass housing, um, low income tax credits, as well as the city's willingness to chip in um, Community Preservation Act money. Uh, but we'll also be looking to the state to help us, help the city um, with the infrastructure around you know, you're going from a school building to, you know, 25 housing units, you know, we'll have infrastructure and um, we feel really confident uh, by not only what the Healy administration has said they want to do, but what they're doing. And um, we know we have a good, we're, we're fortunate, we're, we're continuing to have a good partner in, in housing, especially affordable housing. Could you say more, Mayor, about the other pieces of this puzzle because it's not just a matter of building 25 units and by the way is that the total for uh no it's more okay I, so I, I, proposal has a different amount yeah okay but can you give us the range of how many housing units we're talking about in this overall picture um 40 to 65. okay so that that's a fair number of people and and they are going to to need parking, there are going to be open space requirements, there are going to be places where assumedly the city is going to want buildings, businesses to, to be uh, able to serve those, those new, new residents. Um, is that part and parcel of what comes in these plans to the city or is that left for some other planning process? No, those components are considered um, and put into the proposals that we have received. And a lot of what are in each proposal is based on our, our rubric of what the city had and what services the city had and what the gaps will be where we'll step up. 
Um, so we can test if we have a, a really strong partner in making this work, because you're absolutely right, Bill. It's not just about putting, you know, um, 35 one-bedroom or 20 two-bedroom houses. It's about the supportive services, where the bus stops are, where the parking is, where the parking will be for those buildings and restaurants and businesses, houses that park near the schools now that, that might not be available. Um, I really hand it, I give a big uh, uh, hats off to the planning department and DPW for really putting a lot of time and effort traffic studies into this. So when we get to negotiate the details of these proposals, the city knows exactly what we need as far as parking. The city knows what we need as far as infrastructure, water and sewer. Um, so we're putting something, we're building something together with a proposal that's based on our needs and also our gaps. Um, so explain this to me. You put out on a view, the city puts out a request for proposals. A number, three different uh, businesses, construction firms respond and say, here's what we see, here's what we've designed, here's what we can build. Yep. What happened? This then will go to the city council eventually for approval. Well, not eventually, okay. uh, we'll go to the city council for approval. And then what happens? The city sells the property to these developers with the understanding that here's what they will build. Is that what is that what the process is? So what will happen is that the um, the city council will get these three proposals. Um, there will be one preferred proposal, the one that scores the highest on this very elaborate elaborate um, um, rubric, like a, a report card, and they walk through the benefits for the community um, and give me as mayor permission to negotiate the details of that RFP, the contracts or, or whatnot. Um, in the buildings, like there is a proposal where the city receives money for the buildings. There's a proposal where it doesn't. Um, it, it's a really very difficult balancing act because there are so many, as you can imagine, community interests and needs um to to be balanced and also you're not building something we're not looking to reuse three properties in the heart of our city just uh, for what we need now or what we'll need in 10 years this is a generational um uh, project so the city council gets it really to take a good look at each part of it um what could be augmented what isn't desirable looks over the the rubric that is determined is actually um, built out from state law uh, to figure out if indeed the top score, like what is best for the community. They do have, they, the city council can say no to all of them and we can, we can start over again. I'm hoping and, and I hope that does not happen. And I believe that we've gotten three quality proposals that are really impressive. Okay, one last question before we take a break. You say this is a generational uh, enterprise. This, these, these proposals, the, the one that will be accepted, really will change East Hampton significantly for a long time. Why, why do you say that? Because you're putting into downtown, you know, anywhere between, you know, like let's say 45 residential units. 
and that brings to it people who live there it's their home it becomes their immediate physical community and those buildings were schools right they were empty for the summer they were empty as of you know 4 p.m every day and now it's really the next generation of east hampton will have those fill those buildings teeming with residents um who their backyard will be our downtown and that changes i think in the most positive way uh downtown east hampton it becomes more sustainable and will these in fact be houses with backyards or will these be apartment buildings i neglected to ask you that what are we looking at yeah we're looking at apartments um with really interesting green spaces around them so the uh, apartments won't be just uh you know the schools and parking lot uh there are community gardens proposed there are playscapes proposed um small passive parks around it um i must say each each proposal really understands what East Hampton wants to see downtown. And, and that's not just more concrete, but that uh, is really living, breathing, integrative space. We are speaking with East Hampton Mayor Nicole LaChapelle. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back more with the mayor on this Mayor's Monday right after this. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. This week's Shop Tuesday is Fishtails Bar and Grill. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Fishtails releases certificates for their bar and grill in Hatfield. You'll find what you're craving at Fishtails. Stuffed haddock, scallops, pan-seared herb butter salmon, and swordfish tips. Daily specials from noon to four on Fridays and Saturdays, and fish and chips for just $5. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Fishtails Bar and Grill in Hatfield. Available this Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Fill in the blanks. H-A-M-B blank R-G-E-R. You get it? How about B blank T-T-E-R L blank N-C-H. I don't have a hard time filling in the blanks. You? If you need to fill in the blanks on your grocery list, hop into State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits right in downtown Northampton. Swing into their big free parking lot between classes before pickup, after drop-off, and fill in the blanks on your grocery list. Or pick up a quick stroller sandwich for lunch for you or your kids. Or heck, you could do all of your grocery shopping there. No blanks left on the list. And did I mention that they're called State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits? You could also pick up some L-I-Q blank O-R. You can fill in all the blanks on your grocery list at State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits on State Street, downtown Northampton. Picture perfect days here in the valley, and there's not a better place to celebrate those perfect days than at the Bridgeside Grill in Sunderland. The Bridgeside Grill has undergone a stunning transformation and expansion, and now it's time to revisit one of your favorite spots in the valley. Check out the new and expanded bar area and dine by the warm and cozy fire. The Bridgeside Grill is open Tuesday through Thursday starting at noon, Friday and Saturday starting at 8, and don't forget Sunday brunch from 8 to 2. The Bridgeside Grill, right in the heart of downtown Sunderland. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. 
And this is Mayor's Monday. We continue our conversation with East Hampton Mayor Nicole LaChapelle. Mayor, I'd like to ask you about a topic we have been discussing with the other mayors on the show. Recently, we had a conversation with Mayor Joshua Garcia of Holyoke about the report about, uh, I thought a quite disturbing report about how civilian complaints had been handled in his city to be sure before he became mayor. We also have had a number of conversations with uh, Roxanne Wiedegartner of Greenfield about what is happening with policing in her city. Uh, Joshua Garcia, I think I mentioned, perhaps I overlooked, saying that he's the mayor of Holyoke. Um, I haven't heard much, and maybe that's a, a good thing since uh, good news tends not to be reported and uh, things that are disturbing or problematic do make headlines. Uh, I'd be interested to know an update on what is happening in East Hampton with regard to policing, in particular with regard to alternatives to policing, something we have talked about with you on this show a number of times before. What's the story on that? So I, I pursued, I mean, every city is its own entity and God bless home rule charters in Massachusetts and taking a look at where our operations were, police operations were, where they really needed to go and the, the structure of our city, I opted not to do one particular department to take on um, equity, um, you know, true equity in policing, um, a very, very multi-pronged, laborious, urgent, you know, long-term um, project asked change. I could, I get, I go down the rabbit hole even thinking about it and decided to embed in each one of our departments um, not only a frame of equity um, when we're making policy decisions, but also to have uh, employees and professionals in departments, especially police, um, that would lend to more community policing, but also really getting at um, microaggressions and, and aggressive aggressions uh, between the police and the community. So we added a co-responder, um, almost a year ago um, that's been really successful, licensed mental health, um, a licensed uh, social worker uh, that is a part of a grant, CSO oversees the clinical portion of that. Um, critical to have a third party clinical organization kind of bring in those services, kind of gives everybody a step back of what we think is just fine. And, and you've got somebody like CSO and they're excellent professionals saying, well, wait a minute, like, you know, let, let's really work with this client or this kind of call this way. Um, as well, we've added community social worker to our health department and another public health nurse to really take a 360 view of what's going on in policing and what we can defer um, from interaction with the criminal justice and get that over to uh, social workers and public health. Um, sometimes it, it's a, um, a service problem and another department can help. And then the police themselves um, doing a lot of different um, in training, um, undoing racism um, uh, trainings, wrote a grant recently um, for the department, the police department to have um, their, a focused therapist on staff, full-time focused therapist. Um, that will be working with the police, somewhat fire and other city employees, but really looking at the mental health um, stability and uh, resilience of, of our police force and working with them 
um, to really, you know, I can write as many re-envision police reports as I as I want and so can the community, but the work starts, you know, right in the middle of each roll call on every shift. And, um, you know, East Hampton PD um, has really stepped up into it and uh, got themselves their own therapist as well. We're doing more co, um, a co-responding uh, and cross-training with the fire department of just how to deal with certain issues um, with folks who are traumatized or might be, you know, in, coming from a trauma-informed place and that we're making that assumption on the front. So um, I, the last thing I'll say here too is the approach I took, um, I do feel is a good long-term strategy for our city. I would also say that having the post commission up and going, even though it's, you know, in the first you know couple of years, has been tremendous. So all of our complaints go right to post as they're supposed to, and um, the um, yeah, all of them go, you know, as they're supposed to, into the statewide database, looking at who should their past um, infractions. Uh, training. We're going to add a training coordinator because now in the police department, because now we can work directly with the post commission and their um, expanded options and and um, paths to training that are more relevant, quicker, faster, um, that can help our force respond to what's going on. Um, so we're, you know, nothing, you know, nothing's perfect. Um, but another tip of my hat to, I'll tell you the rank and file over uh, East Hampton PD, really taking it to heart and writing those kind of grants to get themselves help to be a better uh, policing presence in East Hampton and for the um, leadership over there in PD to follow their suit and they're working, they're working well um, to be in a better place. So Mayor Oshapel, this is a longer conversation we're gonna have than we're gonna have time for now. But I would like to ask you this. Uh, what you are describing in East Hampton is significantly different from what is the uh, Division of Community Care, part of the city's Department of Public Health in Northampton, different yes. from Cress in Amherst. So I, next next month, I'd really like to hear more about this. I want to hear the comparisons. I want to hear the similarities. I want to hear the differences between this co-responder model and a separate response unit, um, which I have thoughts about. That said, I wanted to, before we go, I want to ask you a question, probably a little unfair given the amount of time we have, but I want to ask the question about what you just said, which is how you go about measuring the success of this new these new initiatives in East Hampton with the police. How do we know if they're working? How do we know if there's less violence? How do we know if there's better interaction? How do we know if there are fewer arrests? How do we know that people are getting services instead of arrests and records and convictions? How do we know? We're right now tracking that case by case and coding those cases as such. But Bill, you bring up a, a very good point because I don't think anybody has the one solution of, of how we evolve policing in the Commonwealth, never mind East Hampton. But the, the, the last part, which I had hoped to be the first part, is that we've upgraded all of our incident command management software and built a new data center around it that actually gives real-time data and allows for very specific reports um, and data points to be um, uh, to be collected and put into those reports as far as not just how many arrests, 
um, pulling over, warnings, where in the city, what time in the city, um, you know, the ethnic, um, the ethnic profile of those who are interacting with the police and, um, and not just also uh, where are the police going for certain calls, where are those calls resulting in referrals to um, uh, social support. You know, I mean, the whole idea is, you know, with this system, along with other things that we've talked about here, the Post Commission, what our sister and brother communities are doing is that having public safety and policing be less than a safety net and really a trampoline, that it's just a check-in for true physical safety, um, mental safety, and then you're back into a system of, or, or you can pick and choose in the system, um, something that is strength-based and, and not, you know, We're going to have to leave it there for the time being. We've been speaking with the mayor of East Hampton, Nicole LaChapelle. For those of our listeners who don't know, POST is the state agency, the Police Officer Standards and Training. It's part of a law reform effort, passed the legislature a couple of years ago. I can't wait to have further discussions with the mayor of East Hampton about this. We'll do it again next month. Mayor LaChapelle, thank you for your time. Thank you all. Thank you. I Muskrat Susie, Muskrat Sam, do the jitterbug at it, Muskrat land and a shimmy. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Northampton is divvying up $4 million in ARPA funds to more than 60 community organizations. Last year, Mayor Gina Louise Shera designated the funds to help the greater community decide how to best rebound from the pandemic. 98 organizations applied and 61 received funding. The largest awards of $450,000 went to Clinical and Support Options, Community Action Pioneer Valley, and the Northampton Survival Center. State Rep. Lindsay Sabadosa will remain on the Transportation Committee in the State House for the next legislative session. She also sits in the Western Mass Passenger Rail Commission, which is in the process of planning another public hearing, this time in Northampton. The commission is seeking a diversity of perspectives to tell them what a passenger rail would mean for individuals, businesses, and the community. From all spheres, from small business to housing to whatever that may be, but I think the commission needs to see a really robust picture of what rail can do for Western Massachusetts. The cost of the rail is between $2.4 billion to $4.6 billion, according to the most recent study. Teachers from the Amherst Pelham Education Association are adopting a work-to-rule tactic when classes resume next week. The union announced Friday that any unpaid tasks in or out of school, such as overseeing extracurricular activities or developing new courses, would end until face-to-face -face negotiations on a new contract resume. APEA President Lamiko McGee tells the Gazette the school committee continues to refuse to meet in person to settle contract disputes. The APEA is also asking for signatures on a petition that demands an end to mediation and a return to the negotiating table. For today, it'll be mostly cloudy, breezy, and mild with a chance for showers in the afternoon. Highs 50 to 54. Tonight, partly cloudy. Overnight lows 26 to 30. And the outlook for Tuesday, mostly cloudy. Chance for rain and snow showers. Highs in the lower 40s. I'm 22 New Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. 
El doctor Javier Reyes, quien ha sido el rector interino de la Universidad de Chicago, Illinois, fue nombrado el jueves como el próximo rector de la Universidad de Massachusetts en Amherst. El nombramiento histórico del nuevo rector, el cual fue elogiado por la gobernadora Maura Healy, coloca al doctor Reyes, un economista nacido en México, como el primer latino en ocupar el cargo máximo en la institución educativa insignia de Massachusetts. En conversación con New England Public Media y Holyoke Media, el doctor Reyes compartió parte de su visión para integrar a la comunidad latina en el campus universitario, pensando en un enfoque que conecte no solo a los estudiantes, sino también a sus familias. Esa es la parte que nos tenemos que enfocar mucho en la vida de los estudiantes en el campus y hacerlos sentir no solo bienvenidos cuando llegan, pero también bienvenidos a hacer preguntas, bienvenidos a buscar los recursos que existen para ellos cuando están tratando de hacer sus tareas, mejorar sus estudios, buscar grupos de soporte, eh, porque todos traemos algo en el que de vez en cuando algo nos va a pesar y poder saber que podemos aproximarnos a alguien y tener esa ayuda es muy importante. Pero también es, es muy importante que sepamos que no solo debemos buscar a los que tienen, se ven como nosotros o hablan nuestro idioma, sino debemos sentirnos cómodos de poder aproximarnos y acercarnos a otras personas de otras afinidades que tengan, ya sea LGBT community o la, la, la comunidad afroamericana, la comunidad asiática, la comunidad musulmana, y crear una cultura de entendimiento, crear una cultura de aprendizaje, crear una cultura de soporte que no solo depende que sea tu grupo de afinidad el que te va a apoyar. El doctor Reyes iniciará sus labores como el nuevo rector de Ayuma Summers al concluir el año escolar, fecha en la que el rector actual, Kumbu Subaswamy, se retira. Yo soy Johan Roshivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we welcome to our show Ken Gloss, who will be at the Jones Library, a presentation sponsored by the Jones Library and the Amherst Historical Society tomorrow, Tuesday at six o'clock. He will be speaking about old and rare books and sharing stories about treasures. You probably know him. You'll probably know this voice and you'll know him when you see him because he is one of the stars of Antiques Roadshow. Thank you so much for being with us, Ken Gloss. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate your coming back to Amherst. You're a graduate of UMass, Amherst, yes? Uh, I'm a graduate of UMass. My wife's a graduate of UMass, and my younger daughter's a graduate of UMass. It's a great school, and we got a great education. Although I will admit, my degree was in chemistry, not in books or literature, but uh, it, it was a great school, and uh, and I, we go up. We've been on a board at the library, off and on, and uh, we still enjoy it. And one of the fun things about doing this talk tomorrow is getting back to Amherst and maybe seeing some friends. You are the proprietor. This is a family and generational business of uh, Brattle Books in Cambridge, right? No, it's in downtown Boston. That's, oh, it's uh, in Boston. I'm sorry. It, yeah, it's interesting. There was a small little street in what was Scully Square called Brattle Street. It's where Boston City Hall is now. Oh, and right. when my father took over the business and my mother helped him buy it for $500, uh, there, it was going out of business. And uh, we've moved seven times because of urban renewal. We've been, We've had fires. We've had all sorts of things. And somehow we keep going and sort of with this sort of the old Dickensian type of secondhand used and rare bookstore. We have outside stands 
that have dollar three and five that's open every day unless it's raining or snowing and we're it's for me it's like a treasure hunt every day never knowing what you're going to see who you're going to meet the people the places the books and uh that's what i talk about a lot is uh the fun of it and you know things like antiques roadshow by the way i'm going to be on tonight uh i'm doing an appraisal that i did in nashville uh and uh so i will be on tonight's show but it's fun that's the main thing i try to get across is that talking about old books the treasures it's it, there's a story behind everything you, the way you describe Brattle books, it reminds me a little bit of Shakespeare and Company uh, in, 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 in London, um, uh, in Paris, I'm sorry, in Paris. It just sounds like it's a unique institution. It just goes on and on, despite the, uh, uh, the wear and tear of time and misfortune. It really does sound quite extraordinary. I'd like to know. Well, go ahead. I'd like to know more about it. How do you keep it going? Well, one of the things about the, the store and this type of store, it's a dying business. And it's not dying because people don't like books, buy books, sell books, read books, but particularly in the inner cities or even in the smaller cities, property value has gone so high, that rent has gone so high, that old bookstores, which I can absolutely assure you, are not the most efficiently run businesses in the world. One right after the other have been going out of business but uh, through uh, my father and then me and then fires and whatever, we own the property. And that's ultimately probably that subsidizes the business. But if I sold that, I'd be home. I wouldn't have anything to do. I wouldn't have that treasure hunt every day. So I hope to do this for as long as I can. And it's simple. I'll just live forever and have fun with it. <laughs> well, tell us how antique roadshows work. I mean, we watch this on television. People show up at these items and hand them over. Well, they show them to the appraiser, the expert in the field. And sometimes they're just worth a little, but sometimes they're worth a fortune. Uh, does that is that how it really works? How does it really work? Uh, pretty, uh, other than a couple of years of COVID, which they had to adjust to a degree because obviously of the pandemic. But the way it works, and right now we're just planning for going out in the spring and summer for 2023's, 2024's shows. Uh, and it's a wonderful for the appraisers. I mean, why would I ever go to Fargo or Boise or Omaha? And anywhere you go in this country, if you have a little bit of time and uh, able to get around a little, everywhere in the country is beautiful. The people are wonderful. Don't talk about politics and religion, and it's been great, and we the appraisers get to be fun. But the way it works, there's a venue, uh, whether it's a convention center or a museum or a, a, an estate or whatever. Uh, you appraise one day from about 7 in the morning, sometimes till 7 at night. Three or 4,000 people come to the show, and they've had to apply through lottery to get free tickets. Each person brings two items. So there's six to 8,000 items that come in and they go through a few lines. They get to, well, I'm in the book table and manuscript, but there's all the other areas and we're next to the music or posters or whatever. And, uh, and we appraise all day long. And, um, and most of it 
is not terribly valuable. And uh, you have ways of letting people down. Although the reality is these don't make TV. Most people who have something that isn't valuable and you tell them it isn't valuable, they're thrilled because they don't have to worry about it anymore. They can read it. They can give it to their grandchildren. They can sell it at the library book sale. But obviously the ones that get on air are the ones that the people have a story. Uh, the book is either valuable or there's some reason. And what happens is one of the things a lot of people don't realize is as appraisers, we don't get paid anything. We don't get travel, we don't get hotels, we don't get meals, but it's fun and it's good public relations. So with no guarantee, we're gonna get on TV. You start the day at seven in the morning, somebody, people come in, no, you know, it's nice, it's nice. And then something comes in that you go, ah, there's a story there. You call a producer over, they come and they talk to the appraiser out of earshot of the guest. They talk to the guest. They hopefully say, yeah, take that. You go over, uh, it takes a half an hour, an hour. You tape a segment. Uh, they probably take tape around 60 to 100, very short to longer statements. That makes up three hours of TV. And uh, that's where the show comes from. And so as an appraiser, you don't know what's coming in. There's no guarantee that you're going to get on TV. Uh, but in almost every show, and there are some great things, and there's a lot of fun things. We are speaking with Ken Gloss. He will be at the Jones Library in a presentation by the Amherst Historical Society and the Jones Library, 6 o'clock Tuesday, tomorrow. He is an expert on old and rare books, and he will be speaking about these stories about treasures. I, I, we have to take a break in a minute, but I absolutely have to ask you this. How do you give an appraisal for something you've just seen? Don't appraisals, appraisers say, I need to compare other auctions and I need to look at this and that in order to have some fair evaluation about what something's worth? Well, first of all, I grew up with this. My parents say my first word was book. I'm not sure, <laughs> maybe it was. I'm sure they were talking about it. But I, after college at UMass in 1973, uh, I needed a year off before I went to graduate school. And uh, that year off now has been 50 years of doing this. <laughs> so a lot of it you do, you know. Uh, also, there are two other book appraisers with you so you can consult. You can go over to the military appraisers or the po yeah, there's a lot of reference. So a lot of it you can do off, off the top of your head. And some of it, you have a computer there, you can do quick research. But then what I tell people is, when we pitch something to be on TV, we pitch something that has a great story that we can talk about. We don't pitch something we know nothing about. <laughs> so uh, just by doing it that way. Yeah, I got it. That makes, that makes total yeah. sense to me. And, and, and some great items and a lot of fun have come in, as they do it when I do talks. Speaking of which, you'll be doing appraisals tomorrow night. Tell us about that. Well, what I do is I, I'd like to think everybody comes in because I do this great talk and I think it's entertaining and I really do try to make it entertaining telling stories. But at the end of the talk, I stay and anyone who's brought any books, autographs, manuscripts, I do a very quick sort of evaluation, look at them. If they have questions, I answer it. If anybody can't make the talk, they get in touch with us through email, call or whatever. 
but uh, most of it I can do on the spot. But to your previous questions, when I do a talk like this, if there's something I can't do, I take a picture and I do some research back at the store and I'll get back to people, but I'll do any and all appraisals. Uh, I'll just do them relatively quickly. Sounds, every once in a while, I'll make somebody very happy. Sounds totally cool. We are speaking with Ken Gloss. He will be at the Jones Library 6 o'clock tomorrow, Tuesday, for his presentation, Stories About Treasures. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more right after this. Without any This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to you know, elicit fear and power and control by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 101.5, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Did you know that you can prevent domestic and sexual violence? You can say something. We all can say something. Together, we can do so much. Say Something is the domestic and sexual violence prevention program at Safe Passage. Join a prevention lab to build your skills and find opportunities to say something to prevent violence. Join us and help make your community safe and healthy for everyone. Get more information or sign up for a prevention lab at saysomethingnow.org. Eat more kale, says the bumper sticker. Why assume I'm not eating enough kale? If you eat at Paul and Elizabeth's, there's always kale. There's the Caesar salad with kale, with romaine, or both. There's the vegetarian platter, vegetables sautéed to perfection, including kale. Or just order a side of sautéed greens. Some people treat kale like one of those good-for-you-but-no-one-really-likes-it things. Maybe those people have never been to Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant. Inside Thorns in Northampton. You love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. That stabbing pain in your neck that keeps you up at night. Ugh. The creaking noise you hear while climbing the stairs. Well, if you ruled out that your neck pain isn't your partner, and the creaking noise isn't the stairs, and it's your knee, maybe it's time to make an appointment with the physical therapy team at New England Orthopedic Surgeons. And at New England Orthopedic Surgeons Physical Therapy, you don't have to be a patient to set up an appointment. Whatever you need, the physical therapist at New England Orthopedic Surgeons will work with your primary care doctor to ensure you're getting the exact treatment for your injury and severity of pain. Physical therapy can be a great option if surgery isn't. Call or go online to set up your appointment today at a location near you in Northampton, East Longmeadow, Springfield, Feeding Hills, or Ludlow and get physical with New England Orthopedic Surgeons Physical Therapy. 
You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we continue our conversation with Ken Gloss from Rattle Bookshop in Boston, who will be at the Jones Library tomorrow, Tuesday at 6 o'clock, with stories about treasures. He is, of course, known to many of you from his appearances on Antiques Roadshow. So we were talking during the break about interesting appraisals you have done for various uh, clients, one of whom apparently was the FBI. Want to share that story? Or can you? Well, it, it was interesting. There was a a moving company that was moving some very rare books for somebody and somehow five or ten boxes of them didn't get off the truck or got off the truck and then about eight months later they tried to sell it to a book dealer they got caught the fbi got involved because it was interstate but when you're found guilty of a crime and a theft sentencing depends on how much you stole what was it worth so they had to call me into court to give an appraisal so that the judge knew how much the value was so he could base sentencing on that and uh it was interesting it was one of the few, one of the few times i've been called actually to sit in courtroom and uh talk about uh, appraisal of that type usually it's an estate a divorce divorces are the worst uh, or uh, someone just wants to get an idea of what they have, which I do with the uh, library tomorrow if people bring books. But uh, it, can, it can be very interesting. I was also, there's a book called Camino Island by John Grisham. I had no idea of it at all. Uh, but if you read it closely, there's a fence. And although it doesn't use my name, it describes me perfectly. He owes me a dinner because of that. I don't know whether I'm ever going to get the dinner. but it was it was fun to see <laughs> <laughs> that must have been a little surprising by the way it was a very big surprise when i got the phone calls coming in that he, he had come out with a new book and people say it's not you it's not you my wife had bought it for me as a birthday present i hadn't read it yet and <laughs> next thing i know uh, john grisham's calling saying talking to me about it but he never told me where he got it you you should write to John Grisham and uh, tell him the value of the meal he never gave you. Well, I'm still convinced if I have to go down to Charlottesville that I'm I've got his phone number. I'm going to show up as a doorstep and say, "Okay, I'm here." <laughs> he seems like a really nice man. So, so is there ever a time where you've been stumped? Maybe that's not a fair question, but you look at something. No, it so is a fair. It's a very fair question. Uh, yes, absolutely. One of the things I tell people is if I knew everything there was to know about books, which of course would be everything about everything, but if you knew everything, it would get boring. You know, you always want to see the item that you don't know, that you haven't seen, that you have to do research, that you have to look up. And what I've learned is you don't need to know everything. All I need to know is what colleague of mine would know or what library would know. And that's all you need to know is who to ask the question to. And I love seeing things that I'm learning or seeing or haven't held before. Those are the ones sometimes that are the most fun. So Ken Gloss, tell me this. Um, on Antiques Roadshow, we often see the appraisers say, well, this item at auction would be worth, well, for example, between five and $15,000. That's a big spread. Which one is yeah. it? Which, and why is that? Well, part of it is when you're doing it on Antiques Roadshow, 
you're literally maybe if it's later in the day you might have an hour to look at the item the book the whatever it, it is but you don't have hours and hours to extensively research extensively check absolutely every detail maybe go through every page check every stitch in a piece of cloth so you give a broader range just to sort of give the people a general idea and they're usually pretty happy in other words if it's worth you tell them it's worth five dollars they get an idea maybe it's worth ten if you say it's worth seven thousand you know on the right day the right auction the right uh person uh, there it might go into various prices there is no, all of these are subjective there's no book out there that says this has to be this this has to be that so a lot of it is experience subjective knowing what the customers are maybe you have one customer or more or less and it's also weird true that weird things can happen at auctions some people start bidding against each other the price goes sky high right that can happen well they're just uh, competitive uh that particularly happens on items that if you're a true rare collector that you realize it might only show up once in the next 10 years or once in your lifetime those are the things if you have the money you'll pay for but one of the things that's very true is you can look up a book and say that it's sold and if it's the perfect copy it gets the high price anything effective Ken Gloss, we're going to have to leave it there. Ken Gloss will be at the Jones Library tomorrow at 6 o'clock for his talk on treasures and his ability to appraise your books, your manuscripts, your treasures if you have them. Ken Gloss, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for coming back to Amherst. It's going to be just a treat to see you. Well, I, I'm looking forward to it, and I always is. And anyone has questions, they can't make it. Google Brattle Bookshop, our website's there. We'll answer them. Thank you so very much. Thank you. and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 MP. And I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And welcome to the show. Um, Dr. Anthony Kwame Harrison is a professor of Africana Studies at Virginia Tech who has published widely on the African-American experience and we're going to focus on a particularly fascinating scholarly article in Africology, the Journal of Pan-African Studies. And that article is called Black College Radio on Predominantly White Campuses, a hip-hop-era student-authored inclusion initiative. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Professor Kwame Harrison. Of course. I'm happy to be here. Uh, Kwame, you're a 1992 graduate of our beloved State University, the University of Massachusetts, at its flagship campus in Amherst. And as we are all celebrating black history this month, your alma mater, I looked it up this morning, has a black student population of less than 4.8% of the overall student matriculating enrollment. And uh, I doubt that it was even that high when you attended and graduated. Yet, in your article... You write about this huge role that black-centered music at predominantly white institutions played in popularizing the hip-hop 
music genre. Now, I don't have to tell people um, about the influence that hip-hop has had generally on the culture, not just the African-American culture, but the way people, not just their music taste or how they dance, about how they dress, sometimes how they speak, how they perceive the world has been impacted by this hip-hop genre. So um, I wanted to ask you, number one, how old is this genre? And number two, to explain your thesis uh, in the article about the role of black college radio on predominantly white campuses. Sure. Um, well, hip hop is turning 50 this year. It will, it's, it has a, a recognized origin point, which is the Bronx or the South Bronx, New York, at a particular party that took place. I believe it's August 13th, 1973. So on August 13th of this year, we can all wish hip hop a happy 50th birthday. But in, in thinking about this piece, I was thinking about just my time at the University of Massachusetts. And it's, it's funny as you get older, I mean, you recognize that you live through certain historical periods, um, you know, the pandemic, 9-11, but, but kind of reflecting back on some of the everyday things that you that you did, I realized, boy, that those the 1980s at that time, the late 80s and early 90s when I was at UMass, that, that's really considered a, a golden moment and an important age in hip-hop hip history. So in thinking about this article and putting it together, the first point that I was really thinking about was the vital role that college radio has played in the history of hip-hop. And for a kid growing up in Shelburne Falls, Massachusetts, having these radio stations, particularly WMUA, but also WHUS at UConn. There was some, um, sometimes at Amherst College radio station, having, having these stations and being able to access hip hop through these stations was really sort of important to my own identity formation as a black kid growing up in these places, because it, sometimes we forget that in the 1980s, hip hop wasn't widely available on on commercial radio, really outside of New York City, you couldn't find it at all, but it was college radio. It were student programmers that were bringing hip hop to, to the people and really allowing someone like me to arrive at UMass in the fall of 1988 and to make friends with folks from New Haven, from Boston, from New York, largely through the music I was listening to and through my music collection. So that becomes the first point. But I think the second point is, as, as we think about that time, and, and UMass in particular had, has, has a notable history, that was a time of a lot of racial um, tension on college campuses. Not that it still isn't there today, but, but, but throughout the late 80s, you see a lot of tension on, on I, campuses. I think I'm asking you to refresh my recollection. I think it was 1986, which would have been just before you got there, when there was literally a, a racially inspired brawl as the Boston Red Sox in the wake of the Boston Red Sox World Series, there were bats being used against white to black combatants. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was not there on campus, but reports were that 500 to 1,000 at moments, white angry Red Sox fans were just looking for black faces because, because black people equaled New York and and the New York Mets, who ended up beating the Red Sox in a, in a devastating ser series that year. And I, I know, I, I knew black kids from Boston, huge Red Sox fans who to told me about having to run, having to run for their lives. That's, that's a bit of history that 
I think there's some work out there that's written about it, but I don't think it's talked about enough. But this was, I mean, it was a high point in in what you see going on at a lot of campuses throughout that time. Some of it connects to anti-apartheid anti movements that were going on that were really centered on campuses that bring race to campus. But another thing is in the 1980s, we see a, a real rollback of the University of California versus Bakke affirmative action case, Supreme Court case, which took place in 1978, I believe. And that 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 sort of conservative rollback that was part and parcel of, of, of what you saw throughout the 80s, combined with other things, created a really hostile climate where, although you had important underfunded organizations on campus, and at UMass you had the Collegiate Committee for Black and other Collegiate Committee for the Education of Black and Other Minority Students, SEBS, although you had sort of important offices that were trying to do things, they were really underfunded. And at this time, the idea of supporting Black students from the top down, from university administration, wasn't really being recognized. So what I talk about in the article is really how Black radio and Black radio programmers at the time on college campuses playing hip hop and supporting hip hop acted as a student authored diversity initiative. I'd like to ask whether or not this was something that was recognized at the time, whether this was intentional on behalf of these black student programmers, or whether this was kind of an underground movement, which is notwithstanding what's going on in the predominant culture. We have something else going on here that a lot of people are listening to and being influenced by. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, I mean, I don't think it was so conscious and intentional, and I don't think, think these student programmers were necessarily saying we we are doing this but in some ways they were doing i think what what black communities particularly when you have numbers at four percent or lower and are coming out of a situation like 1986 what black communities have always had to do there, there's also a, a long history in black radio of really throughout the civil rights movement radio was a space where um things were communicated it was also a space where there was a lot of trust put in black radio djs in terms of of supporting local businesses, letting people know what's going on and what businesses there were. So in some ways, I, I don't think of it as so conscious, but but I think of it as as kind of doing what felt normal and what felt right. So as an anthropologist, Dr. Kwame Harrison, you um, here, here's, I guess, what confuses me is here you are trying to I don't want to say assimilate because I certainly don't want to deculturate African-American students at a, at a predominantly white institution. At the same time, you don't want to be seen as a black student as much as you want to be seen as a student and a, a member of the community. What happened, maybe an unintended consequence of this black music with a black audience on campus, is that it acculturated an entire white population. Uh, for that generation and many other generations, because hip hop is not just something that's sort of relegated to a black community. It's part of the entire that we breathe in in our culture, don't we? Yeah. Oh, completely. And and that's that's a that's a great question. And and it's not an easy this relationship between sort of assimilation and integration, but also 
knowing what recognizing what's important to you that 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 and and what marks your identity that that's a that's a huge philosophical question and i think that that we're we're not going to necessarily resolve it here but we're not going to resolve it here but we have to audit your course right idea, yeah but <laughs> i mean these are these are questions i've been struggling struggling with for a long time but i mean i think that, on the whole i think that's a good thing one college radio in some ways college radio is part of the national spread of hip-hop popularity because within a place like the pioneer valley within rural parts of states where you had large state universities the idea that that people had access to this music people who wanted to had access to this music i think is part of the the broadening of of hip-hop through throughout throughout america but particularly for students on campus i think that I mean, even if other people are being put onto the music and other people are becoming fans, that really, there, there's always, or there have been historical questions of appropriation. And at what point do so many people from outside a community start to embrace something that it loses its meaning to the community? But I think at this moment and that time, it marked friendship and community. I'd like to ask about community radio stations that have an audience outside of the college campus, like uh, WTCC, which is the Springfield Technical Community College radio station, which has a large community uh, audience as well. Um, and whether or not you see those stations as having been significant in making hip hop something that go, has gone far beyond its origins as a black art form. Yeah, um, I. that's a great question. I can't speak particularly to that station. I, one of the things that I focused on in this piece, in this work, is how a lot of large state universities are located sort of in, in more rural communities where there aren't lar large black, black populations outside of that. But I think certainly, I would, I would think that certainly within, in and around Springfield, within community radio, you often have the same kind of a format where where the programmer themselves can make decisions about what music to play, and as long as you're staying within some some parameters, what what to do, and that's that's much different than a commercial radio station. I just finished reviewing a book about how, even in New York City, the the couple of radio stations that played hip hop were always getting pressure from above about, you know would this work and what time frames and what could you play and what couldn't you play so both community and college radio have this broad format that's open that allows people to bring their interests in could i have one follow-up on that um sure i i, I is hip-hop in this way uh uh a repetition almost of what happened with uh Black music in the 1950s and Sun Records and with Elvis Presley and essentially uh, co-opting in some ways black music and making it part of an acceptable to white culture? Or is that too, too much of a stretch? No, I, I don't think that's a stretch at all. I, I mean, the, the answers to these questions are never simple. Um, Around 1990, you have Vanilla Ice, who's a white artist that had a, a fabricated biography to sort of give him urban and black credentials, but you had him having the first um, number one rap song to be number one on the Billboard charts. You have the Beastie Boys, who, who have more 
solid New York City hip hop credentials, but you have the Beastie Boys, a white rap group in the mid 80s having the first number one rap album. So, so there certainly is some of this going on, but I also think that because this occurred in a time where rap videos were so prominent, and I think you had a few industry leaders who really started to promote this question of authenticity. What is real hip hop? What is authenticity? That, that, that um, appropriation is a word we use. Ne never happened full scale because there were enough pressures and voices trying to make sure that people remembered black, remembered that hip hop was a black music and that it comes from black traditions and it has a black sort of aesthetic to it. I think some in some cases with rock and roll, which was a version of urban R&B, some of those, that history gets forgotten and lost. But I think the hip hop community really around that time, the 90s did a lot to focus on authenticity and to make sure that that, that was remembered. But that gets right back to the tension Buzz is asking about assimilation or not. We are talking with anthropologist and professor of Africana studies, uh, Kwame Harrison from Virginia Tech. Um, we're talking with specifically about, during Black History Month, about the influence of black college radio on what literally became culture changing. We're going to be back with Kwame Harrison right after these messages. Stay with us. Rats in the front room, roaches in the back, junkies in the alley with the baseball bat. I tried to get away, but I couldn't get far, cause a man with the touch truck repossessed my car. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, coming up right here on WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. What, what I'm trying to communicate is that there are many, many layers of, of safety management in place at Eversource to ensure that we reduce as much risk as, as possible. Does the Bliss Street Station intentionally vent gas regularly? Because I can tell you that it vents gas. Pretty much every time I've gone to that area, I have smelled gas. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you get the best local and organic produce, a butcher shop, wine and cheese shop, fresh seafood, and hundreds of bulk herbs, spices, and more. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you create hundreds of union jobs and generate over $7 million in purchases from local farms and businesses. River Valley Co-op is your food hub, bringing you the best from around the valley and world while supporting your neighbors and local farmers. Shop River Valley Co-op in Northampton and East Hampton today. RiverValley.com. One of my friends at the Stone Soup Cafe told me a story that's typical of what happens there. She was working at the community garden at the Greenfield Town Farm. She encountered an older woman there, and it was a rough encounter. She didn't leave happy. Later on that week, she came to the Stone Soup Cafe, and she found herself sitting next to that very same woman, and they developed a relationship. And the young woman goes to help the older woman with her gardening, and the older woman is giving lessons to the younger person on different plants and how to grow various things. My name is Ari Pliskin. I'm the executive director of the Stone Soup Cafe. The Stone Soup Cafe is a weekly community cafe that takes place in the parish hall of the All Souls Church. 
church in Greenfield. By operating on a pay-what-you-can basis, it's available to all kinds of people, and a lot of people come who are hungry and who need a meal in order to meet their basic food needs, and other people come just because they love the environment and they love the atmosphere and to have a good time and be part of something special. To learn more, please visit stonesoupgreenfield.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. We are back with Dr. Kwame Harrison, professor of Africana Studies and anthropologist at Virginia Tech. I know, Bill, we were talking about the University of Massachusetts, and you had a question for Kwame. Well, my question really goes to what has happened to UMass Amherst in terms of what was at one point a professed interest and dedication to actually having a more diverse campus. And the black population, student population at UMass, has actually decreased over the last uh, 15 or 20 years. And I'm wondering whether you look at that kind of a institution that has a liberal uh, reputation, um, it's also had some horrifying incidents uh, that we've talked about, uh, and, and whether you see that as being uh, an exemplar in some ways, a paradigm in, 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 of what is happening on Americans' campuses. Uh, you're a professor, you have a lot of students, you talk widely and speak widely about this topic. I'd really appreciate your perspective. Has Americans, I guess the topic really is, 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 is have the American university, has the American university really given up on diversity despite all the verbiage to the contrary? Yeah, that's that's a that's a, that's a great question, and I can speak a little bit about my understanding of higher education. I can speak a little bit about the Massachusetts context, but only so much about the Massachusetts context. I think one of the kind of key points that I'm trying to make in my piece is that I think during the 1980s there was a question of just getting people on campus and 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 that if and again I don't want to discount the important work that SEBS and and other underfunded offices were doing but they were underfunded and there was just a question of numbers around the 1990s so post kind of the period that I'm dealing with in this in this in the article that I wrote post 1980s, you start to get more of an emphasis on multicultural education and this this multicultural push, you start to get curriculum requirements. And this is at least a gesture. It's a gesture towards saying it's not just getting the diverse numbers here, but it's also implementing something in the fabric of the university. I think if you look at any school today, you're going to see the school have an office, a, a, a head administrator, and various organizations and initiatives that support um, diversity equity and inclusion, DEI it's often called, but I like to actually say the words. So right now, you, you will, I mean, this idea of not just diversity, not just numbers, but making sure people feel included and have um, the same kind of, kind of chances to succeed is really important, at least in terms of what universities say. But from what I see, and I think this is the case at Virginia Tech, and I would imagine this would be the case in Massachusetts, that state government and state schools particularly are increasingly underfunded by the state and they therefore need to find other ways to to support themselves and to and to bring bring students there and, and one thing that Virginia Tech has done is raise tuition and when you raise tuition you get 
even with numbers, you start to get a certain class dynamic. And although you always have, a few, I mean, just like we see going on in society, you have a shrinking of those, those people in the middle, and you may have a, a small, a handful of students who are supported through programs in the school, but a lot of kids going to Virginia Tech, and I would imagine UMass as well, come from really wealthy families because that's what it takes to be able to attend these universities. So I do think there's a, so I would, I, I, I do think, I wouldn't say there is no interest in supporting diverse student bodies, but I would say that the, the financial pressures and priorities that universities face make a, create a situation where when you think about black people being disproportionately represented in the working class and the lower rungs, that, that there are few and fewer opportunities for those people to attend school. But Kwame Harrison, in your piece that we're discussing, which is Black College Radio on predominantly white campuses, you do speak about the lack of conviction or preparation on the part of university administrations in dealing with diversity yeah. issues and, and some about uh, what you're talking about now, the, the lack of ability because of uh, not enough resources to really follow through on mm -hmm. it. But what I found very important, maybe you could speak to this, is how it's a student-authored inclusion efforts manifested through, among other things, Black College Radio for black students made available to white students that prom helped to promote uh, on campus diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. It's the students who come there to learn, but in some ways, they're the teachers. Yeah, yeah, and, 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 and that's, so again, in the 1990s, I, I don't think those convictions were that well there we can question bill breaks a great point about whether those convictions are there today they're at least they have offices today that, that are supposed to be dedicated to this in the 1980s they didn't have those offices so you had students and you know this is an an ongoing story that black students or other underrepresented students come to campus and then end up where your primary purpose should be to 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 learn to to develop to set up your career through education and through networking there are incidents happen on campus or there are offices that need support there are places where where students get asked to do a lot of educating and there's a, there's a lot of other almost obligatory work that these students have to face on top of just surviving their classes and the financial hardships. But particularly in the 1980s, at this time, what you see are students, yes, arriving on campus and DJing, but through that DJ, um, through that radio programming space, one, it acts as a node of information. So much like we see, twi we see Twitter or something today, and not that many, I don't think that many 20-year-olds listen to college radio today, maybe a few, but back at that time, oh, so many students on campus were tuning into the radio. So it's funny, I was making these pause tapes in Shelburne Falls. And by a pause tape, I mean you had record, but you had a pause and you waited for the song you wanted. And then you lifted up the pause and you played the song that you wanted to hear. So I'm trying to get just the music. But on some of those tapes, I got the radio talk. And that's you kind of often what you didn't want. But in researching this article, as I'm looking back, one of the first tapes I put in, there's an announcement that coming up that Tuesday, there's a meeting to draft the constitution for the Black Student Union at, at UMass. So, so there's information about there's this meeting and we're drafting this constitution. There's information about a new restaurant, a soul food restaurant or a restaurant that, that would be that Black people would be interested in coming to campus. 
um, organizational meetings. A big thing that I write about are just shout outs, just this idea of, oh, I want to shout someone out, whether it's a name, whether a person, an organization, whether it's someone's birthday, these kinds of things being broadcast over the air, let students feel that, okay, uh, you know, I, I belong to this place. I, 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 these, are, these are those moments that, that help to get you through. Then the other powerful thing I think is just the music itself. When we, we sometimes don't recognize how important music is to our feeling of, you know, do I like it here or do I not like it here? But when you walk in a place and they're playing music that you like and you identify with, that kind of says, okay, this is an all right place. If they play music that you don't like, if they play music that, that's abrasive to you or that you identify with people that you assume don't like you, suddenly there's, okay, Am I going to enjoy this or not? There's a whole another layer. And I think that we often don't think about how places sound and how that can really be an important key to belonging. So in all these ways, having this music broadcast across campus with both black kids and white kids, and as it's growing, this is still something that a, 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 a black kid from Brooklyn can say, you know, oh, this is, this is, this is, our music, this artist is from Brooklyn, and I'm here, even if you're at a majority white party, there's still this idea that can... You belong. You yes, belong. That, that, can, that can help you feel a sense of belonging. So that's, that's really the work that, this, that this, this college radio programming was doing at this time. What a great I place to I... leave it. Um, we have been talking with Professor Anthony Kwame, Harrison, uh, an anthropologist and professor of Africana Studies at Virginia Tech. The article is Black College Radio on Predominantly White Campuses. And here, thank you so much for your work. It's Black History Month, and it's time, other than in Florida, it's time for us to really celebrate our history, all of our history. Thank you so much for joining us, Kwame. Sure, Buzz. Could I just, I just want to say rest in peace to John Bracey. He passed mm. away. He's an important professor in the W.E.B. Du Bois um, Department of Africana Studies at UMass, important in my growth. I, I, I learned he passed away two weeks ago today. Huge loss, huge loss for black history. It was, he was, an, he was a monumental figure, not only in the uh, African-American studies, in the Afro-Am department at UMass Amherst, he was a towering figure in this community as well as in the black community nationwide. So thank you so much, Professor. Kwame Harrison for remembering John Bracey. That would be totally appropriate and we really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us, Kwame. When we come back after the break, we're going to have writer's block with Megan Zinn and Mary Beth O'Connor, a reading specialist here in Northampton. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay with us. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Northampton is divvying up $4 million in ARPA funds to more than 60 community organizations. Last year, Mayor Gina Louise Shera designated the funds to help the greater community decide how to best rebound from the pandemic. 98 organizations applied and 61 received funding. The largest awards of $450,000 went to Clinical and Support Options, Community Action Pioneer Valley, and the Northampton Survival Center. 
State Rep. Lindsay Sabadosa will remain on the Transportation Committee in the State House for the next legislative session. She also sits in the Western Mass Passenger Rail Commission, which is in the process of planning another public hearing, this time in Northampton. The commission is seeking a diversity of perspectives to tell them what a passenger rail would mean for individuals, businesses, and the community. From all spheres, from small business to housing to whatever that may be, but I think the commission needs to see a really robust picture of what rail can do for Western Massachusetts. The cost of the rail is between $2.4 billion to $4.6 billion, according to the most recent study. Teachers from the Amherst Pelham Education Association are adopting a work-to-rule tactic when classes resume next week. The union announced Friday that any unpaid tasks in or out of school, such as overseeing extracurricular activities or developing new courses, would end until face-to-face negotiations on a new contract resume. APEA President Lamiko McGee tells the Gazette the school committee continues to refuse to meet in person to settle contract disputes. The APEA is also asking for signatures on a petition that demands an end to mediation and a return to the negotiating table. For today, it'll be mostly cloudy, breezy, and mild with a chance for showers in the afternoon. Highs 50 to 54. Tonight, partly cloudy. Overnight lows 26 to 30. And the outlook for Tuesday, mostly cloudy. Chance for rain and snow showers. Highs in the lower 40s. I'm 22 New Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5. 1400 and 1240. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. Does your partner threaten or isolate you? Do they control where you go, who you talk to, or what choices you make? Are you afraid of what they might do? you have the right to a healthy and safe relationship. If you're experiencing abuse, emotional, verbal, physical, Safe Passage is here for you. It's all free and completely confidential. Call our helpline to explore your options and plan for safety. That's 413-586-5066, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Or visit safepass.org today. If you have a bottle of Starbucks Frappuccino vanilla drink in the fridge, look closely at the label. PepsiCo is recalling 25,000 cases of the beverage because some of the bottles may contain small pieces of glass. Each case contains 12 bottles. So far, no reports of injuries. The United States Postal Service has a new warning for consumers, counterfeit postage stamps. In its crackdown, the Postal Service warns that if consumers order items that are shipped using fake postage, the company will confiscate and discard the items. Tesla is recalling more than 362,000 vehicles equipped with its advanced driver assistance system that the company markets as full self-driving beta. Safety regulators said the cars could violate local traffic laws, potentially increasing the risk of a collision if the driver fails to intervene. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we are back. It is President's Day and always on Talk the Talk is Mayor's Monday, but it's also 
Megan Monday. Megan Monday. When we have our writer's block writer's segment block. with Megan Zinn. And my guest is Mary Beth O'Connor. So it's, it's Mary Beth Monday, too. Um, <laughs> Mary, welcome, Mary Beth. Thank you. Um, Mary Beth is the reading specialist at Ryan Road School in Northampton. Um, and she lives in Northampton. Mm-hmm. And so we're taking kind of a different tack today and talking about reading, um, getting granular, how we actually learn to read <laughs> and, and how we can make our kids into readers. Um, and, um, you know, I was thinking about this when I, um, I think we, we I remember that when my kids first learned to read, they wouldn't read at home. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew they were learning at school in kindergarten, but they wouldn't like read out loud to me. And I really wanted them to. And I was volunteering in the schools. And so I would go and I would sit there and all, with any kid and they would read out loud to me. So mm-hmm. they'd have somebody to practice with. And so I got to do it with my kids. And both times with both kids, it was the first time I heard them read. Ooh. And they sat down and opened up these little reader books and just started reading. Ah. And... I, did, I started crying both times. Um, it was <laughs> one of the most amazing moments of parenting Aww. in my life. And so I've always been fascinated by, like, how this happens. So right. to start, tell us about your role as a reading specialist. Oh, what does sure. that entail? Well, I get that feeling that you just got all the oh, time. Oh, how fun. It's am- so I'm pretty Do you sure. cry? I have. <laughs> <laughs> like, sometimes I stop and just say to a kid, like, do you... Do you see what you just did? I mean, it's amazing. What it's a amazing. Experience. So basically, um, my job is it's pretty much a super dreamy job. I get to work with small groups of kids all day long, um, no more than three, mm-hmm. and I support them in their reading. And I work with kindergarten to second grade, so I'm really yeah. doing the early reading skills. Um, there's a different fabulous reading specialist at my school that works with three to five. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Okay. So, very, very narrow group. It's great. Um, yeah. Can you explain, like, the process, how we learn to read? Like, what, what is the process in our brains oh that allows God. us to do this? So, it's really complicated. And honestly, the more I learn about it, I kind of can't believe anyone can do it, let <sighs> alone five to six year olds, many who don't even have their front teeth. And they're like learning this like amazing thing of being able to learn to read. But really, the theories has changed Mm -hmm. over the years. Mm -hmm. We used to think learning to read was a lot like learning to speak. And learning to speak for most kids happens with no no instruction. They just do it. And so we used to think reading was like that. And we used to think that if we just surrounded kids with good books and we talked about words and we read aloud, they would learn to read. And for some kids, that's true. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like many kids, they need pretty minimal instruction. But for a lot of kids, it's not true. And what's really changed the landscape of reading is the ability to see inside people's brains as they read through fMRI imaging. Okay. And now we know that there's actually, unlike speaking, where there's really one central area of the brain that's set up for speaking, for reading, there's not. There's no specific areas about a connection. And so when we're teaching kids to read, we're really working on that neural highway, which is really breaking down how sounds are represented by letters. Mm -hmm. And... It all starts really with kids understanding that words are can be broken down into sounds, which sounds like a simple skill, yeah. but is really hard for kids. Mm-hmm. If you say the word cat, that has three distinct sounds in it. Right. And kids that can hear that easily are really well equipped to start reading. Some kids cannot do that. And so you're starting there. Yeah, so, really, really yeah, at the, at so the very basic. So that's the learning to read mm-hmm. process. Well, can, can I just follow up on that yeah, a little yeah, bit, yeah. Mary Beth? So... I mean, it's a series of symbols that mm-hmm. you see the K, right? and then you learn the sound of the K, and then when you learn to put the entire word together, 
and articulated, that's a symbol for a concept as well. Right, and that connects to the meaning and the pronunciation, and so it's all... There's a lot there. There's a lot there. That's what I'm saying. The more more I read about it, I'm like, I can't believe we can all do this. And it's a relatively new skill in in terms of how the brain has developed. Speaking's been around for like 100,000 years. Reading is like 5,000. Oh, interesting. And we weren't wired to do it. And that's why for some kids, it's really hard. And we can do it, I mean, people do it all over the world with completely different symbol systems. Exactly. And they all work for that particular culture, which right. is amazing. Is there also an element of, rec- it seems like um, kids learn to, we learn to recognize like the shapes of words to an extent, um, or, um, you know, after a while we're not even sounding them out and we're recognizing sort of the shapes of them it seems like it evolves the way that we read. So it's not really... So that's sort of like an old thinking that ah. it was more visual. Oh, okay. So now we do... Eventually there's this process called orthographic mapping, which mm-hmm. is basically when you have done all that work that you just described, Buzz, where you see the letter, you know the sound, you connect to the meaning, you kind of store it in the area of your brain where you sort of have that word, and the only way you're going to not have that word is if you have brain injury mm-hmm. or you die. Mm-hmm. Like, it's kind of your it's word. There. Okay. But it's through that process. And for some kids, four times kind of seeing a word, that it'll become what we call a sight word, which means a word we just know. Other kids, kids with dyslexia, a lot more exposures oh, are needed. Okay. Yeah. And so what is, what is the process by which we teach kids to read? Right. So basically, if you break down reading into its simplest components, kids have to be able to decode a word which in and of itself is a really mm-hmm. difficult process because mm-hmm. you have to know the letter, know the sound, blend it together, remember all of it, and then on the other side of it, you also have to know what that word means. Yeah. And so when you have, you can decode a word, know what it means, then you have what we call reading comprehension, where, which mm-hmm. is obviously the goal that you understand what, what you're reading. And each of those skills can be broken down into lots and lots of different skills. All like right. on the language comprehension sign, you're talking about um, vocabulary, background knowledge, verbal reasoning, all that mm-hmm, kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So pretty complicated. It really <laughs> is. Um, and, and mind-boggling that, again, that we do this at the age of four and five, and I some know. kids even earlier. I mean, oh, yeah. rare kids. But yeah. um, So my guest is Mary Beth O'Connor, and she is the reading specialist at Ryan Road School, and we're talking about reading and how um, young people acquire this skill, and sometimes um, and sometimes adults, because some people do learn mm-hmm. as adults. Sure. Um, so what kind of things can get in the way of learning to read, both physically and sociologically? Um, well, I mean, oral language is a huge part of reading. So kids that grow up in homes where they're hearing English, um, they're hearing lots of words, they're just kind of come, they're coming to school kind of ready with that mm-hmm. sound area of their brain pretty fully, well, not fully developed, but they have a lot going on there. So that can make a difference. Um, genetics can make a big difference. Mm-hmm. If dyslexia runs in your family, um, you have a 50% chance of having that. Um, that is something that you might be dealing with. Language processing skills, um, you know, ADHD and being able to focus. I mean, there's really yeah. so many things that, that impact reading. Um, you know, English language learners, like they are, they are learning so much to be able to read the, the language and also the making of the code and vocabulary. So it's a lot no, of there, There's yeah. a lot, and it's both physical and, um, yeah. and sociological. Um, um, my guest is Mary Beth O'Connor, uh, the reading specialist at Ryan Road School. Um, what can parents do? Um, this will be a two-part. We'll sort of uh, maybe take a break in between the two parts of it. What can students, parents do to make sure their kids are ready to learn to read? What, what can they do in those first three or four years? Mm. I think um, talking to kids a lot, 
playing with sound, all those mm. like nursery rhymes mm-hmm. and um, rhyming and all that stuff is to kind of teach kids all about the sounds in our language. But the other thing is really just doing things with your kids and talking to them. Ah, because yes. anytime you have heard an idea in the world, if you know anything about it, a word, an idea, and then you see it in print, it's just easier. Right. And so, and by doing things with your kids, it could be so little, just taking them to the grocery store and having conversations about how things I don't know, things in the grocery store. All those things are so important for learning how to read. And and a lot of times talking about things, not just like brush your teeth, like actual like, you know, feelings and things like that. Ideas. Okay. As best yeah. you can. Yeah. And reading to them. Reading to them. Reading to them, yes. To and which is of course a pleasure. Oh yeah. Um, at least I found it to be a pleasure. Yeah. Um and what can we do to um help our kids love reading, like want to do this once they kind of know how to. Yeah, I think that um, a lot of times, particularly with kids that struggle, they and, and you know, kids are working really hard in school, so they may not want to go home and read out mm-hmm, loud to you. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's okay because I think parents can sort of bring that enjoyment of reading. Mm-hmm. And I think that can be done in so many ways. Reading aloud is a wonderful thing to do with kids. It's a great way to connect with your kids. Yeah. You can share a book you loved as a child. You can share a book that they are interested in. And you can make those connections even as they get older. I mm-hmm. mean, I think a lot of times people think of reading to kids only when they're young. And right. I would say read to them as long as they will let you. <laughs> and then when they won't let you do that, maybe a partner read where you read the same book. And oh, as cool. they get older, you can talk about ideas that are... Um, you know, that may be hard for them to talk about, but our issues they're dealing with through books. So it's a right. great connector. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Well, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Writer's Block with Megan Zinn, and her guest today is Mary Beth O'Connor, the reading specialist at Ryan Road School. And when we come back, I would like to just follow up on that comment by pointing out we read like crazy to our kids. My parents never read to me. And yet, and I'm not a particularly bright guy, and I'm sure I wasn't a particularly (laughs) bright kid, but I learned to read like everybody else, I hope. Mm -hmm. We're going to be back, and we're going to talk to Mary Beth more about that and other things right after these messages. Stay with us. This is Talk the Talk. Skates cutting the ice and sticks pounding boards. The slap of the puck and a peel off the post. The chirp of the whistle and the blaring of the horn. Hockey is here. Tune in for all the sounds of the season right here on the UMass Sports Network. 1015, 1400, and 1240 WHMP. In today's competitive hiring environment, job seekers demand stability, competitive salary, generous benefits, work-life balance, and a path to retirement. The Massachusetts Department of Correction can offer all of those things. This is the perfect time to join the team as a correction officer and take advantage of the accelerated hiring process in a career that's challenging yet rewarding and allows one to make a positive difference in the lives of others by providing custody care and support programs for those under supervision. Salaries start at $62,000 and include a pension plan, health, dental, and vision insurance, as well as paid sick, personal, and comp time. Get full pay during your academy training, education pay, 
tuition reimbursement, and the option of early retirement after 20 years. If you have never considered a career in corrections, now is the perfect time. Apply today at mass.gov doc recruitment. Start your rewarding career at the Massachusetts Department of Corrections. Paid for by the Massachusetts Department of Corrections. Picture perfect days here in the Valley, and there's not a better place to celebrate those perfect days than at the Bridgeside Grill in Sunderland. The Bridgeside Grill has undergone a stunning transformation and expansion, and now it's time to revisit one of your favorite spots in the Valley. Check out the new and expanded bar area and dine by the warm and cozy fire. The Bridgeside Grill is open Tuesday through Thursday starting at noon, Friday and Saturday starting at 8, and don't forget Sunday brunch from 8 to 2. The Bridgeside Grill, right in the heart of downtown Sunderland. That stabbing pain in your neck that keeps you up at night. Ugh. The creaking noise you hear while climbing the stairs. Well, if you ruled out that your neck pain isn't your partner, and the creaking noise isn't the stairs, and it's your knee, maybe it's time to make an appointment with the physical therapy team at New England Orthopedic Surgeons. And at New England Orthopedic Surgeons Physical Therapy, you don't have to be a patient to set up an appointment. Whatever you need, the physical therapist at New England Orthopedic Surgeons will work with your primary care doctor to ensure you're getting the exact treatment for your injury and severity of pain. Physical therapy can be a great option if surgery isn't. Call or go online to set up your appointment today at a location near you in Northampton, East Longmeadow, Springfield, Feeding Hills, or Ludlow and get physical with New England Orthopedic Surgeons Physical Therapy. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we are back. It is Writer's Block uh, with Megan Zinn, but I'm sort of stealing time from Megan <laughs> Zinn. Um, and we are with Mary Beth uh, O'Connor. And uh, Bill Newman is right now in um, east of east of Africa yeah, on an Mauritius. island of Mauritius. And Bill, you had a question for Mary Beth. I did, because many people in this island nation speak many languages. And I'm wondering what your view as an expert in reading, what it is like for children, and what are the pros and cons, the difficulties and the attributes of a child growing up in a household that has more than one language yeah. being spoken. Um, I wouldn't say I have an expertise and, in that particular area, but I would say from my experience, I think it does make it harder because when you're thinking about developing that sound area of your brain, you're hearing all kinds of different sounds at the same time. And so what we found is sometimes kids in multilingual um, households have a little bit of both languages, but might not be um, proficient totally in either. However, ultimately, it's probably pretty great to be able to have access to two languages. Yeah, yeah. Do you have um, a sense of how it affects reading, the process of reading, if they've been learning more than one language? Um, I think they probably would benefit from direct, explicit instruction in whatever one you're trying to teach them in. So, if, so like, we have a lot of families that might speak Spanish at home, or are trying to teach them English in school. And mm -hmm. so they, it used to be that they would just work with an English language teacher, and they might not see me. And we've now realized that it's really effective to teach them explicitly how English works, and they can really do uh, quite well quite fast. Yeah. So kind of getting um, 
instruction and the vocabulary and, and all of the other things, but specifically the code of reading can yeah. be really helpful. Yeah. One thing about, uh, about the other languages that I found really fascinating, my kids went to um, a preschool in Northampton that is a, a, a Jewish preschool based mm -hmm. at, at the um, CBI synagogue, and they would learn a little bit of Hebrew, but the head teacher talked about once where they don't, when they put it up on the walls, they put it up as transliteration because the idea of particularly if there were kids in the room with dyslexia that they didn't know about trying to teach them also Hebrew letters that look that read in the opposite direction and look oh nothing God. like English yeah. it, it, I, I think it was a can of worms it was, yeah. the, was the sense of it and so that they put everything up transliterated rather than probably um, you know introduce that for three and four year olds which, oh, wow. but I thought That's that was really lot. fascinating yeah 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 um, um, my, my guest is Mary Beth O'Connor, who's a reading specialist at Ryan Road School in Northampton, on vacation right now, which mm -hmm. is the only reason we could have her. <laughs> um, and um, so one question I have, this was, a, this was an issue for me. Um, my kids were big readers, but around adolescence, they really kind of stopped for mm -hmm. various reasons for themselves. And we, we have a household where we're reading all the time. It, you know, they're on screens a lot, but it's not screens all the time. Mm -hmm. And my question is, like, what can a parent do to kind of keep their kids reading, particularly through those difficult adolescent years? Yeah. You know, I think that's pretty common. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times I think it's because there's a lot of reading required for school. Yes. And they're busy. Like, mm -hmm. they have a lot going on in their lives. I saw that, too, in my own family. And I will say they're both back and reading a lot now. But I saw that kind of shift. Um, but I would say stay at it. Don't give yeah. up. Um, mm -hmm. I think giving gifts um, as books can Smart. be great, even if they don't read it right away. It's something, and I love, I always try to give my kids books that I loved, like yeah. A Good Earth or um, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. and they may not dive into it right away and maybe not even for a few years, but it's a nice way to yeah. share that. But I also think giving choice and also thinking outside the box, not just books. Mm -hmm. There's magazines. There's, I mean, there's just so many ways to access reading yeah. and topics that you can sort of leave good magazines in the yeah. bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question for you. Sure. Can you talk a little bit about reading an actual book versus reading on screens. Mm. How, how is that uh, changing the, the nature of reading? Yeah, you know, I'm sure there's been a lot of research on that. I will say that as not an area that I have a lot of not expertise good. in. I personally do all reading with kids with books. I think at home kids are reading more on screens. Mm. Um, are they able to absorb as much? I mean, do you, have you noticed, is there any... I mean, I know you said you're not necessarily an expert on it, but what have you noticed anecdotally? Yeah, I mean, I think screens are impacting um, kind of kids in a lot of different ways. I mean, I think, you know, I think their attention is on a lot of different things. They play video games, all that kind of stuff is probably more the impact that I see that it's mm. like sort of the interest in books. But mm. um, yeah, so... I don't know. I, I'm kind of old school, so we, <laughs> we, do, we do books and... Yeah. Uh, and I think kids can get really excited about books. Yeah, I do. Yeah, mm. and and Mary Beth did a decent job because her son is now an English major in college, <laughs> so she did something right. Um, <laughs> and just the last question: What kind of books do you love to read? Oh, I love historical fiction. Oh. I always have, and I also love. I have to say, I love books in a series, and I think that's another great thing for parents mm -hmm. if their kids are struggling with reading to get them into a series where you have characters that come back. It yes. just makes it a lot easier. Um, go Hardy Boys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, my, so my kids read Rick Reardon, book, Re Re Reardon books right. over and, and over and Harry over. Potter. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. just so many. And I, lo I love to get into a series. Right now I'm reading Louise Penny's new oh, yes. one. Yes, I've yeah. read all of those. Those are some of my favorites. Um, yeah, so I, I love stuff like that. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being here.
That was a great segment. I really appreciate it, Mary Beth O'Connor. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, we could use more reading specialists. I'm, yeah. <laughs> we all need our so very own for... reading specialists to follow us around. <laughs> well, thank you So for I just me. want to check with Bill Newman there in uh, Mauritius. Uh, how's that cyclone treating you and your family? Well, except for the electricity going out in the middle of this segment, or actually the previous segment, pretty well. Thank <laughs> you. The cyclone's okay, and everything here is fine. Okay. And the cyclone will go away in another few hours, I hope. Well, just keep reading. Wow. <laughs> I'll keep reading. Thank you, Mary. Best Beth. present my grandfather ever got me a subscription to the New York Times. <gasps> oh, yeah. Mm. There you go. There you go. Very nice. <laughs> well, listen, for those of you who've been listening in the morning, thank you so much for spending some of your day with us. For those who are listening in the afternoon, coming up right after the news break, another full hour of Talk to Talk, including East Hampton Mayor Nicole LaChapelle on plans to create new spaces, retail spaces housing spaces, open spaces in East Hampton, and from Antiques Roadshow, rare book specialist Ken Gloss. Thank you. Talk to you tomorrow. If he is up for what you have in mind Changes on the cards But this time it will be hard The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster. Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2. Only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster. WHMP. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station.